industry is losing roughly $10 billion as a direct result of anti-black bias. Movies made from scripts on the blacklist make 90% more in revenue than movies made from scripts not on the blacklist. What I can say about Miss Winfrey is, is all of the extraordinary things you've heard about her. Maybe the industry's not terribly good at identifying what good scripts are. They've made more than $30 billion in the global box office. These were not moments that I expected. Yeah, yeah. What I want everyone to do is just rewind. Hi, Franklin. Hi, Arlen. It's good to see you. It's good to be here. I feel like this conversation is long overdue. It We've been having is. this conversation. Yeah. But like, yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say before we get started in, in earnest mm. is that I believe you are responsible for much of my success. And not all. I didn't say all. No, 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 no. Okay. Even much seems like probably <laughs> but I, overstating I, I it. I do but. think that I, I credit you with that because you were early on someone who said before things started really happening for me, before people knew certain things were going to happen and right. be announced, you came to me and said, who, who do you want to meet? Yeah. Who, whose orbit do you want to be in? What do you need? Literally said that, and then I started listing things off, and you said, well, this person's attainable, this one person's not, this person I can reach out to. And then you did it. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that does not ha happen very often. It's funny that you mentioned that, because I, I often struggle with the fact that that's kind of what I do. Yeah. Like, it's just what I do, yeah. and I don't think of it as terribly rare, because it just seems really obvious to me, right? Like, as an external observer, seeing what you were doing, seeing what sort of your sort of worldview sounds wrong and investment thesis sounds wrong, but like your thesis on the world very much aligned with mine and you were doing great things. So it, it, it was only gonna kick back to me to be able to introduce you to other great people that you could then do things with. So I didn't think of it as a big deal. I was just like, oh, this person seems amazing. I like to meet amazing people. Let me connect them to other amazing people. Glad it worked. Yeah. I, I, I yeah, don't really I know just, what to say, I say that. that. I mean, you know, I feel the same way. I, I'm constantly yeah. making calls for people, and I think it's I think it's incredibly, it comes back to you. Yeah. It comes back to you, and really, in, in a savvy business people, and savvy people, and, and also people who just want to have a, like a high quality of life, right. know to give more than you take, yep. etc. but it's still rare. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't really speak for the rarity of it. And I try not to think about it too much yeah. it'll make me depressed. Yeah. But yeah, I mean look, it kicks back in one it kicks back either in like substantive business ways or you get the personal joy of seeing that introduction blossom into something really exciting. Yeah. And yeah. and that's sort of very much my entire professional yeah. career. So yeah. Yeah. Well, for anyone who in my audience who is not familiar with you yet, or yeah. in a new audience that's yeah. coming to this, the the summary of kind of this this storytelling yeah. of you reading scripts for whom yeah. and then something happens and what's that lore? I'll, I'll try to do the quick version of the story. So um, I moved to, to Hollywood almost exactly 20 years ago, which makes me feel very old. Um, I did the assistant thing at a major agency. I worked for CAA. I had a uh, development executive job and found myself then working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. And my job was to find great scripts and great writers that I could then give to my boss and we would then hopefully either make them as movies that Leo would star in or movies that he could produce. 
And, you know, I, I always knew that my competitive advantage in Hollywood was never going to be being the cool guy or being the well-connected guy. It was going to be being the nerd who could, like, read 20 screenplays a weekend and come back with pretty, you know, much 100% retention of that because it's who I am. But most of the things that I was reading were not the kind of things that I could walk into my boss's office and slam down on his desk and say, cancel your day. This is our priority now. But that really is the standard, right? And it's, um, it's a hard thing to do. It's not an easy thing to write a great screenplay. And I think people underappreciate just how extraordinary great writing is because it's rare. Um, and, you know, working for Leo, I was working for a white male movie star who's maybe the biggest movie star in the world. So I was seeing everything because if Leo's interested, you got to go movie. Right. But most of this stuff wasn't great. So at the end of uh, 2005, I took a survey of my peers and said, send me a list of your 10 favorite unproduced screenplays. In exchange, I'll send you the combined list. I did this anonymously. And that's what I did. And it went viral sort of within the industry very early, sort of in the days of the notion of virality, right? This is late 2005. YouTube has been around for a few months. There are no iPhones. There's no Twitter. There's no all the ways in which we share information online now just don't really exist. It was all via email. Um, and then those movies started to get made, and they started to do very well. Um, and the writers who wrote those scripts started to get other jobs, and those movies would do really well. So uh, six months later, um, an agent calls pitching me a screenplay. Uh, you know, hey, I have Leo's next movie. You should read it immediately. And that was normal. I got that pitch like every Tuesday from somebody. Yeah. But this guy goes, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be number one on next year's blacklist. And I was not going to make another blacklist. Right. So right? the the anonymous sort of thread you had created, yeah. he not knowing you created it is saying, I know what's going to happen next year. Right. But you're you're the one who would control that. Right. I was on the control that and putting aside for a moment that even even if I was going to make it again, it's a survey. Who knows yeah. what's going to be. But on the fact that he knew about it and that he was referencing it as exactly. something as a sales tool for his client, as a speculative thing. Yeah. And that made me realize, OK, well, I was using it to find good screenplays. But if agents are out here pitching their clients, like lying about their clients being on the list next year, yeah. it must have more value than I realized. I love that. And so I decided to do it again. The Los Angeles Times sort of outed me as the person who created it shortly thereafter. And then a little bit after that, Juno and Lars and the Real Girl get nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Juno and Lars and the Real Girl. Yeah. I remember all that time in my life. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think it was 2006. And they were huge. I mean, they were like indie breakout hits. Massive. I mean, yeah. Juno made obscene amounts yes. of money. Yes. And no one would have thought that it would have done that well. Yeah. But that was the number two and number three script on that first list. Mm. So that made everybody who was already interested in this list that came out at the end of the year say, wait a second, if you make these movies that are on this list, you make money and win awards? Those are two primary incentives for all action in Hollywood. And, you know, you've really seen a virtuous sort of cycle born of that over the last now 18 years of the list. So, you know, I think it's 474 movies have been made from scripts on the list. They've made more than $30 billion in, in global box office. 280-odd Oscar nominations and 60 wins, four of the last 13 best pictures were scripts on the blacklist before they got produced. Um, I'm going to stop you for a second. Yeah. What I want everyone to do is just rewind. <laughs> I'm not even going to have you repeat it because right, you, you've done all the work. Fair enough. I want you to re rewind and listen to what you just rattled off yeah. as, a t uh, as a Tuesday uh, over dinner. <laughs> right. This is, I don't know anything else like that. Are you, do you feel like you're getting your just, I mean, we're going to get into it, keep going, but do you feel like you're getting your just props? Well, I, 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 I think to answer that question, I have to contextualize it a little bit more. Okay. Like, 
I did not make those 474 movies. I didn't produce them. I didn't, you know, write them. I didn't do craft service on them. And the credit for those movies, I think, has to go to the people that make them. Yes. I think what credit I can take, and now my team can take, is, is that we built a really effective metal detector to go through all of the haystacks and find the needles. And I think that is something that people may not fully appreciate how, how effective we are at doing that. Mm. Um, and that sort of goes to the, the bigger story about what we did next, which is, um, well, let me back up. One additional data point. Uh, Harvard Business School did a study on the blacklist a couple of years ago and found that movies made from scripts on the blacklist make controlling for all other factors 90% more in revenue than movies made from scripts not on the blacklist. Just to, mm. again, just sort of really drive home that point that like the metal detector is a very effective tool. Yes. Um, and I, I think that it also led to this realization that maybe the industry is not terribly good at identifying what good scripts are, what oh, scripts and what that. talent yeah. they should be investing <laughs> in. And if it was true that they're bad at it within the industry, maybe there is a ton of talent and a ton of writers that are not that haven't been able to penetrate the industry mm-hmm. yet that we should be trying to harvest from those haystacks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit like, oh, we had the metal detector inside of a barn and we're going through all the haystacks in the barn and hey, here are all the needles. And then at some point we open the barn door and there are an infinite field of haystacks and all of a sudden we have the only industrial metal detector. Um, So just about 10 years ago, we launched a website that allows anybody on earth to upload their screenplay for a fee, get transparent, accountable feedback on average in less than five days. And if that feedback is really positive, if one of our professional readers who've worked in the industry says, this is really good, more people should know about that, we give you free hosting on the website. We give you more evaluations so we can gather more information about it. But we also tell everybody in Hollywood, this is a really good script. Yeah. You should do something with it. And we've seen a ton of success. I mean, literally hundreds of writers have found agents or managers or gotten their movies produced. And then on top of it, we have partnerships with everyone from Google to the National Resource Defense Council to, um, to you know, Warner Media and MGM to identify writers to get you know, first look deals at studios, mm-hmm. grants. Um, in 2022 alone, we gave away more than $800,000 directly to writers. Yeah. What um, is a m- more recent movie that has, you know, bringing it back the 20, yeah. year, or 20 years or so? I mean, I mean, uh, more more recent annual list success stories, Jojo Rabbit, Pr- uh, Promising Young Woman, sort of recent Academy Award winners, uh, scripts discovered on the website uh, that, that got produced. Um, there was a movie called The Novice that was nominated for Best Picture at the Independent Spirit Awards in 2022. Mm-hmm. That was a script where the producer found the script on the Blacklist website. Um, I'm a little biased on this one, but my wife's directorial debut, Mr. Malcolm's List, uh, which is available on streaming now, uh, she found the <laughs> script on the Blacklist website. Um, It's also available on a lot of flights. It is is a very popular plane movie. Uh, And I actually highly recommend uh, viewing it in that that venue. Um, So there are a lot. And, and, you know, even when you look at the annual list now, when it comes out, there is, you know, one of my favorite stories this year is a writer named Cameron Clark, who lives in northwest Arkansas, Mm. uploaded his John Madden biopic script to the website, where it was found by an Oscar-nominated producer, Todd Black who then optioned the script or attached himself to the script, and they sold it to Amazon. Wow. Um, And the writer still lives in northwest Arkansas. So you shouldn't have to move to Los Angeles and network if you have talent, right? Maybe you do that after you've already sort of got an agent or a manager and you're looking for more employment opportunities. But just to get consideration, 
moving to Los Angeles and paying rent out here should not be a precondition to say, hey, everybody, I'm actually talented and can make you money. Yeah, yeah. And I will make you repeat one number, which yeah. is the box office total. Uh, just over $30 billion from, 30 the, from billion. the annual blacklist movies that Where do produced. people see the annual list? Where yes. is it published? The annual list is published on our website, blcklst.com. At the end of every year, you can see all the old lists So there's there. a recent one. Uh, yeah, just yeah. came out in December. Yeah, so, yeah. that's so cool. So spell it again for anybody who wants uh, to see it. It's Blacklist with no vowels, so B-L-C-K-L-S-T.com. Incredible. I know people are going to go. And how many people? How many movies are on the list? Uh, so typically every year is somewhere between 75 and 85 scripts mm -hmm. on the list every year. Um, and then, you know, as a separate enterprise, the website's sort of functioning at all times. Uh, I like to think of it as like a common application to the film, television, and theater business because you have, you know, Everyone from the junior most agents assistant on the site to, you know, triple A-list actors and directors yeah. looking for material there. Have you ever thought about doing a, 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 an award show based on it? Uh, we have. I mean, look, our 20th anniversary is coming up uh, in 2024. Maybe that will be the time to yeah. do it. Um, you know, I tend to think in, like, cost-benefit. And for me, it's like, does the cost of putting on the award show uh, will it deliver benefits for the writers and for us? Who can say? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this is a podcast mainly for entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so this is a company. I mean, this is life-changing for so many people, hundreds of writers. Yeah. But it's also a business model that you are the CEO of, yeah. right? Is Yeah. So, I mean, is that something, would you say, what, what percentage of your time would you say is, is on this versus being a producer and doing all the other things I see you do? I would say that ninety percent of my time is the business, yeah. right? Um, and and the the producing, which I think is part of the business, though it's a rare part, um, and then other random things that I get into, mm -hmm. um, you know, are things that sort of just come up and they're too good to not do. But my preoccupation out, outside of you know watching soccer yeah. uh, well, is, is building is building the best tool possible that will allow people who have talent to be identified by people who can do something with that talent and to help people who can do something with great writing uh, most efficiently find that work. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've done that in film and television. I think we're improving on that in the theater space. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to expand that model uh, in ways that will be good for everybody. Yeah, that you know, of course, that's my question. Next question is, like, where do you go next? And it sounds like you figuring out ways to verticalize this. I have a few ideas uh, and a pretty clear plan for the next three years, but not necessarily one that I'm ready to talk about. You said the next three or 30? Three. 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 Uh, okay. I definitely do not think in 30 you're talking okay, about Okay. Hey, I wouldn't be surprised if I, you did I, that. No, 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 no. I think that, that is a fool's errand for anybody yeah, trying to do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so you talked about, can I call it soccer? Is that okay? Yeah, soccer, football. I don't know. Okay. So you, you, you... I go back and forth, honestly. Where does that love for soccer for you? Because I yeah. watch you. Yeah, it's crazy. You know so much about this sport. Yeah. Where does it come from? Um, so I grew up playing. My dad was in the army and we lived in Germany for three years when I was very young, which is like right around, like between the ages four and eight. Mm -hmm. was right around when you first play your first sport, right? Yeah. So that was the sport that we played. And when I, we moved back to West Central Georgia, my dad got stationed at Fort Benning, we just kept playing. And you know, my parents wouldn't let us play American football because it was too dangerous. Yeah. I wasn't good at basketball. Um, so soccer was the thing. And then my younger brother was a bit of a prodigy. Like, he played on the under-17 U.S. national team, full soccer scholarship to UVA, played in MLS for seven years. 
notably, he's now a doctor uh, after going to med school after a soccer career was so over. So many of us, you know. Yeah, it's so so many of us are yeah. former professional athlete, emergency yeah. room physicians, um, <laughs> with three daughters who he's raising impeccably well. Um, <laughs> I and I think let's see. So that was sort of, you know, our family was a soccer family. Yeah. Right. In 1998, when France won the World Cup, it was pretty controversial. I was in college, and it was pretty controversial because at the time, Jacques Le Pen uh, was running for president of France and was using the French team and the fact that it was mainly players of African and Arab descent as a wedge issue. Mm-hmm. And I remember my favorite player at the time was a guy named Lilian Turam, who was a left back, which was the position that I played. And he, had never, he was the, mo- the player who had played most for the French national team had never scored. Hmm. And then in the semifinals of the World Cup, he scores twice. And then they w- and then in the final they win. And after the World Cup was over at the press conference, someone asked him about the Jacques Le Pen thing. And he gave this answer in French, and so I've only read the translation, but it was essentially something like, yes, uh, you know, he has said that, that we are not French, but if you look at all this team, Every single one of them, we are French and we are world champions. Mm. And, you know, combining culture and politics like that, I, I was done. It was, yeah, up your alley. So, so that sort of began this process of me sort of falling in love with soccer as a lens through which to view the world, which is not all that different from the way I view film and mm. entertainment. It is about the thing itself, but it's also about the ways in which the world engages with it. Yes. Right? So... I can go anywhere in the world and have a, a conversation about soccer just about. Like, and I have. I, I've been in Shanghai and been to games and, like, I've been to India and, and had conversations with, you know, literally anybody. Mm-hmm. And there's something very special about a bunch of people who don't know each other coming together in a physical space to watch, have a shared experience that then becomes a, a common language for everybody around the world. Yeah. It's true with film. It's true with football. Um, I think of soccer just as sort of like improvisation between 22 people to tell a story. Mm. And, you know, when you watch like the World Cup final this year, there's not a script in Hollywood that can deliver on drama that good. Mm. But it's the same emotional, broad human experience where class, race, gender, none of that really should matter. And in its purest form, it doesn't. Is there a soccer, football documentary? Because you, I the way so you describe ideas. it, I yeah. know you view it as beautiful, as just pure I beauty. I do. Can you translate that to film? I think you can. I think there hasn't really been a great soccer movie. I think some of that is due to the fact that, like, the film industry has historically been, like, defined by the Americans. And, mm-hmm. and football is rel- soccer is relatively new here as, like, a, an obsession in yeah. the way that it is in the rest yeah. of the world. Um I also think it's hard to sort of navigate around people's allegiances to their national teams. And like, it is a deeply held uh, emotional relationship that mm-hmm. you have with your team. So it would, I can imagine it being hard as an audience member to sort of root for your rival team if, yeah. if that's the story. Yeah. So I haven't found the story. I think there's probably a lot more documentary content in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you've seen a lot of that with the Arsenal show, mm-hmm. um, the All or Nothing, uh, Welcome to Wrexham. Yeah, uh, I, love Re- I love Wrexham. It, I love that. They've, they have captured, I think, so much of what why it matters, right? And yeah. if you talk to people about that show, it's really funny because Rob and Ryan are the reason why they were able to sell the show. Yeah. 
but the reason people are watching it has very little to do with them. It's about the fans of Wrexham and the team. Yeah, and it's just also a beautifully produced. Yeah, they've done a phenomenal job. Yeah, they did it. They, they, did, they did it. Whatever job they were it. trying to do, they they exactly. accomplished. So, but no, I think there's look, there's a lot of amazing stories to be told. And again, mm-hmm. I think that stor- the best stories about soccer will be stories about the world yeah. and stories about who we are as human beings and the way we live now. Yeah. Wow. So is there like a dream type of collaboration there or project there for you? Or do you just love being an observer and fan? In the, in the soccer thing? Yeah. Look, I... It just I, seems like right there, you know, look, to if, me. If I won the lottery tomorrow, mm-hmm. I would buy a team the day after tomorrow. Copy. Um, <laughs> and I have ideas about which teams those would be. Mm. Um I don't have a billion dollars, and yeah. to buy a team at the top level, you need several billion. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think that being, again, I, I think that there's an there's an opportunity to do something in soccer that is not about soccer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, if you buy a team and you do it right, it's about the community around that team. And if you do that part right, team stuff will work itself out, and even in failure, the, the, the audience, your fans will still love you for what you've done for the community. And yeah. again, I think going back to the Wrexham thing, I think that's why it's so successful, is that they're hoping that the team will do well. But the reason why Rob and Ryan, I think, will continue to be successful with that is it's not just about making the team good. It's about what does it mean for everybody? Mm-hmm. What is this stadium, this team, what does it mean to a community? So you, um, it, f- it seems to me you should be... Not not a Siskel Ebert situation, but some sort of commentary on the industry. You certainly yeah. have the chops for it, and you certainly can articulate it well. Is that something that is interesting to you? It is to an extent. I mean, look, I, I certainly comment quite a bit on Twitter, uh, yeah. as you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, you had Jeff Bezos answering you at one point. Yeah, that was a weird day. Uh, that was a very <laughs> weird day. It was like a cross. It was actually like he he had given a compliment to Reed Hastings, and yeah. I made a joke about uh, something being up, and he was like, no, 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 just, yeah. just give me a compliment. Yeah, you were saying, like, Amazon might be trying to buy Yeah, Netflix. I just said something's up, yeah. I think. And he was ah, like, no, 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 just a compliment. And I was yeah. like, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, but, yeah, no, look, I, I, I find that space good because it allows me to make a comment on things that I see that could be different or maybe are not mm-hmm. functioning optimally. A regular commentary, I don't, I haven't figured out what venue makes sense for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I think the, the critical thing with all of that stuff is that it can't be ego driven. Yeah. You know, and I, I try to guard against that as much as possible. I tell you what would be great. A re a redo of uh, Peter Barton, Peter Goober. You know their shootout. Yeah. Their shootout. You and someone else, preferably a woman. Yeah, I mean definitely non-binary person. Yeah. Just, I mean, it was so. It was not dry, but it was. It was just sort of just the facts, ma'am. You know, it yeah. was just a lot, and it was great opinion, mm-hmm. and a lot of respect there. I think yeah. that would be really fascinating to watch. One thing I've always wanted to do. I'm fascinated by, I, I'm frustrated by the extent to which it's impossible to have like honest debates mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that I might be more successful as a, as hopefully like an honest broker of, of honest oh, debates. Sort of moder- moder- so yeah. the ability to have me and then two people who just disagree radically on an issue, but are actually yes. capable of engaging yes. in that debate and sort of me playing, uh, you know, Dev, like basically allying myself with the other every yes. time anybody has an argument and sort of playing that role, I think could be interesting. But again, I, I'm I'm intrigued by it, 
but it has to be the right thing, yeah. and I think it has to be something that that is adding value and not just about me saying, yeah. "Look at me and my yeah, opinions." Yeah, I could see it being part of the blacklist and you yeah. know presented by the blacklist in, in, in collaboration with someone else. I hope then, I can figure it out. Yeah. I just haven't yet. Well, if anybody's watching, we're doing manifest manifesting on the show. Let, let's do it. Yes. Let's do the lottery win for the soccer team. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, let's do it all. Are you? Uh, are you? Have you been to the? Um, Angel City Games. I bought my Angel City season tickets yesterday. Wonderful, the LA. Um, oh, I'm very excited. Oh, I've we, been to, I've been to a game. I have the jersey. It's so exciting. Um, so I'm fun. I'm very. I literally locked in my tickets right before the draft. The first draft yeah. pick was made. Very excited about um, you know our Harvard Westlake alum first yeah. round draft pick. Who Alyssa, just we were just at their watch party. Oh, actually. really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super excited about it. I um I actually think that women's football is a rocket ship. Let me say that again. We were just at their watch party a few weeks ago. I mean, that's just, I'm just jealous, I mean, more than anything. But, no, women, look, I think women's football is an absolute rocket ship. Yeah. I think over the next five years, Angel City, every NWSL team, all the teams in Europe, uh, there's a lot of money to be made there. Yes, and I agree with you. Because these women can ball, A. Yeah. Uh, the games and the environment to go watch the games in are incredible. And... Um, Again, it's, it's great human trauma. Mm -hmm. um, when I watch a Women's Champions League match uh, in Europe or when I watch you know, the NWSL finals, it's the same experience as if I'm watching a men's yeah. game. And um, Well, for me, it's yeah. even better. I, I don't, I mean, it's yeah. it's like watching Serena and yeah. Naomi. I'm not going to sit around and watch Federer. I'm not just not going to do it. I Look, I got to rev a little bit for Federer because the band can play. Yeah, He's one yeah, of the best yeah. of all time. Yeah. But again, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. I have the same experience watching Roger Federer as I do watching, yeah. well, not the same experience, yeah. but, but, but they're both among the greatest athletes of all time. Yeah. And watching a great athlete do what they do is an enjoyable experience as a human being. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think women's, you know, look, there are not a lot of obvious investments to me. Mm -hmm. Women's soccer seems like a very obvious one. Well, Alexis Ohanian knows. He knows yeah, that. And I, all of the people who have look, been smart enough to do I, that. I regret profoundly that I did not have the ability to get yeah. a piece of Angel City There's when still they time. There's yeah, man, but, hang, but hang it's already with, it's already grown tremendously. Hang out with me a little bit. I had a chance. I just didn't have the money. I'm just saying. There's still time. All right. But again, <laughs> the value has gone up, rightly yeah, so. Yeah, but as you say, five years, it's, it'll be a rocket ship. So I got it, some other I, I got, still. I got some other ideas with some more upside. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is, and it's fun as a as a fan and new fans to kind of get into that. It's. I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you're in a city with an NWSL team. You should be going to the games. Go to the games. Same with the WNBA. Same yeah, absolutely. So much fun. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. You're going to have to help me remember yeah. the name of this because I am not cool at all. But I don't know. I mean, depending on what it is, in 2022, you, there was a day that you were the coolest person on earth. Do okay, you know I think about? I know what you're talking about, <laughs> but I don't think that's necessarily accurate. What, what is the name Are we of the, about the Met Gala? The Met Gala. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you did at the Met Gala last yeah. year? Um, so I was brought in as an advisor to the costume exhibition. Um, the gala is a fundraiser for, my understanding is, is the Costume Institute at the Met. Yeah. And every year they do an exhibition. Um, 
that you know is, is sort of part and parcel of yeah. that day, and you know as part of uh, as basically as in exchange for for that advising service uh, and helping them identify and connect with directors uh, in Hollywood who would be a part of the uh, exhibition. Uh, I was I was I was given a ticket to the the gala. Uh, yeah. Which was and you understood the assignment. Ah, uh, that's what, what I'm told. Is what I, happened. What, so the the theme was the Gilded Age. Gilded Age. Um, which you know I I had a little bit of discomfort with. I think mm. uh, in 2022 during the middle of a global pandemic, uh, you know the Gilded Age for me is about a lot of uh, mm -hmm. class conflict mm -hmm. and sort of increasing inequality. Yeah, inequality. Um, and I'm also acutely aware of the extent to which the the wealth built during the Gilded Age was built atop the nation's history of slavery. Mm -hmm. Let's just put a very fine point on it. And so when I thought about who were my heroes from that age, it was very obvious to me. It was Harry, to Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Um, and so I went to Kenneth Nicholson, who was generous enough to dress me for the event, and said, you know, these are my two inspirations. And I had two reference images, you know, one of the Douglass-like suited mm -hmm. images and, and one of Harriet Tubman. I was like, this is, this is what I'm looking for. And, uh, yeah. I, he understood the assignment. Yes, um, and sure. you know I had a bustle, uh, and many jokes were made. Some of them good, some of them bad on the internet about it. But you know I think when you end up on the Esquire best dress list yeah. and on the Daily Mail worst dress list, you're yeah. doing something right. I mean, right in the pocket. Describe it a little bit. I, we, we may be able to throw up a picture of it, but yeah. there's a. Yeah, it's like a proper... And then a bustle, because you're, you're taking your inspiration from a man and a woman yeah. who are two of the most famous people yeah. on Earth. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was like a formal—I I definitely don't have the, the fashion language for this, and I'm going to embarrass myself. But no, it was like a formal overcoat. There was a vest that had a corset. Uh, the coat was bustled, so it sort yeah, of gave me, like uh, accentuated my hips. Yes. Um, and then just, but it was it was a standard white, uh, like white tie, like a very high collar, like you would have seen in all those Frederick Douglass photos, like a sort of blue teal corseted vest, you know, sort of gray slacks and that bustled coat. Um, yeah, it went it over. It went so over. Oh, and I and, and sort of beautiful, like uh, la like a lace hair tie um, yeah. and sort of lace accoutrements. It was again all credit to to Kenneth who did the who dressed me because you know it's not my area of expertise. Yeah, and I think literally part of the reason why it was it was so funny for me was that anybody who knows me, the idea of of me being the one on that red carpet was at least a little amusing. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it was it was a fun night though. Yeah, do you enjoy? And I want you to be honest. I know you yeah. always are, but I really mm. want you to be to think about this. Do you really not enjoy the spotlight, or is it that you like? Where do you yeah. think your place is personally? I think I'm still figuring that out. Okay. If I'm being honest. I think. I don't dislike it, but mm. I do find discomfort in the spotlight. Mm. And part of that discomfort for me comes from, uh, is there a better person who should be in it? Mm -hmm. right? So imposter syndrome, perhaps? It's not even imposter syndrome. It's just that, like, I, I think I'm acutely aware of the ways in which uh, decisions get made about who's in the spotlight mm -hmm. that are maybe not actually what's best for the person who's in the spotlight or for the spotlight itself, or for okay. the people who are paying attention to what's in the spotlight. And so, 
sometimes maybe I am the person who should be in the spotlight. Mm. And, and you put yourself there. You do yeah. at the Met Gala. You're going to make a statement. But that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that someone else couldn't have done it better. Yeah. And so for me, I think ideally, if I am in the spotlight, I should be doing absolutely everything I can to justify being there. Mm. I should do everything I can to to carry some sort of mirror and shine the, the, that spotlight to, onto somebody mm -hmm. else simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not the right person, I should probably try to seed it. You know what, I, I, there was a, a Zoom conversation we had with a mutual friend like a year ago, and we were talking about something. It was an opportunity, and you were going to be get, given an opportunity, you know, part of an opportunity. Yeah. And you said, well, let's first see if there is a woman that could do this first. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like that should be the default of yeah. is, is everybody being represented or enough people being represented here? So I, I do get that. Um, there's a photograph. You're at an award show. I'm getting warmer. Do you know where I'm going with this? Still don't know. You're at an award show because yeah. you go to so many. I know you really do. You I, to, yeah. You do. You're, you're there because you... You are behind the scenes, but you have touched so many lives, and I'm sure they want you in the building. There's a woman. She is an upstart. She's up and coming, mm -hmm. and she is holding your hands and shaking them. Oh. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, okay, now I know what this is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She is thrilled to have you in her Yeah, it was a pretty wild, pretty wild day. Talk to us about that. Does she moisturize? Are Every, her hands like a lily pad? Uh, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. One of the weird things about working in Hollywood is that you do find yourself in rooms with or in meetings with or meeting in person, these people that you've known about for mm -hmm. what feels like your entire life. I can attest to that. And you've heard all these amazing things about them or they, their, their publicists have made you think all these amazing things about them. What I can say about Miss Winfrey is, is that all of the extraordinary things you've heard about her are true. Uh, and it's an absolute delight uh, to meet someone who has been celebrated as much as she has and have the interaction still exceed expectations. Um, no, again, and it, that was a perfect example of, you know, I was in the room with somebody like her who I would assume has no idea yeah. who I am yeah. and why would I? Like, why would any would be, of us assume that well, Oprah knows who we are? Exactly. It would literally be like assuming that God has prioritized you over all other human <laughs> beings on Which Earth, is what right? most people do. I, I, but again, like I try to sort of remove the ego from and it's like, why would Oprah know or care who I am, yeah. right? Um, but she was the one who said, hey, you. And I think it reflects like that's why Oprah's as successful as she is yeah. because she's sort of doing her work to know who's who's out there. She does um, her research. I've heard that multiple times. I don't think you get to where Oprah is without being yeah. a, per, a research-driven person, yeah. just period. Um, and you know, she was yeah. She reached out for me and thank you to Boris Kitt of the LA Times who happened to snap that photo on his uh, cell phone. I, I I will forever be in his debt. Listen. If I were you, and I hope this is true, yeah. that this is already the case, but if it's not, let's fix that today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a five by seven foot framed picture of that on this wall as I walk in my house. <laughs> and on the other side, I'm going to have my bustle picture from the Met Gala. I, I, I definitely, I've, I've, both of those images are, are extremely important to me. Uh, are they framed and heavy and earthquake proofed? They, As you walk into your home, they today. are not, but they're definitely in. They're, di they're digitally secure. Okay. I, I just, <laughs> I just moved, so we we're still figuring out sort of what's going to go on the walls. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean these, 
these were not moments that I expected from yeah, my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to have them happen, to have them happen the way that they did, it's incredibly gratifying. But, but, but look, what I'll also say is probably my proudest moment professionally is, is getting this award from the Writers Guild East, the mm. Evelyn Berkey Award, which is given for honoring the, for, for elevating and honoring screen, the screenwriting community. Mm. Or, or, or is it honoring and elevating the dignity of the screenwriting community? The dignity. Okay. And I think, you know, like I look at the sort of the, the previous names on that list, Joan Diddy and James Seamus, uh, Ken Sarawiwa, the idea of my name among them is absurd to me. But the fact that the right, like the Writers Guild, the organization that exists to protect the interest of screenwriters, believes that that the work that I've done and the work that my team has done has elevated the honor and dignity of screenwriters, I don't, I don't know that any Oscar is going to ever exceed mm -hmm. that. Or any photograph. Yeah, or any I meeting. just, it's, it, it's, it's just incredible. It, it's, 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 but it's, you know, dedicating your life to a community and having that community say, "Well done." Mm. What's better than that? Was there a time in your life where you weren't sure of if things would work out? I mean, I'm still, I think, not sure if yeah. things going to work out. No, I think, yeah. Look, I graduated from college 23 years ago. Um, I ran a congressional campaign. We lost. I wrote for a newspaper for four months in Trinidad, realized that that wasn't the career for me. I was a management consultant for two years, realized that was not the career for me. Came out to Hollywood. I've, I've you know, been let go from multiple jobs. That's life, and I think I'm really what I'm really proud of is the fact that like, you know, some things don't work out, and you dust yourself off and take some you know an education from those experiences and, and adjust course, mm -hmm. and hopefully, the work that we're doing sort of allows me to benefit from that education, but also allows everybody else to benefit from that education too. Yeah. It's amazing. I think there are some reference uh, pieces that I want people to check out. One is your TEDx talk. Mm. One is uh, you, you either did a report or you, you were on some sort of Bloomberg type of thing where you were talking about the state of uh, black um, work, you know, pieces in, in Hollywood. Yeah. There was a McKinsey study. McKinsey, so, yeah. yeah. So McKinsey yeah. did a study um, came out in 2021. Um, about basically the co the financial cost of anti-black bias in Hollywood. And what they basically found was that uh, the industry is losing roughly $10 billion as a direct result of anti-black bias. That's not $10 billion, period. That's $10 billion every year. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been one of the people involved in initiating that study. And then I wrote a New York Times editorial about the study and what it meant. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a must-read thing. Yeah. Because... You know, all of these failures, I think this is one of the reasons why I probably reached out to you originally. All of these failures are bad for diversity, but they're worse for capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Like, I would like to see a more diverse Hollywood, just like I'd like to see a more diverse, you know, more diverse corporate boardrooms. But part of the main reason I want to see that is, is because I would like efficient, productive systems to exist. I just happen to know that for those systems to be optimized, we need more diversity. Um, and that was that's always been your thesis, and mm -hmm. it was one of the places that I knew we would connect immediately yeah. when I first became aware of you. Yeah. Very, yeah, full circle, as Oprah says. As our, as our friend Oprah says, it's, I'm manifesting that um, she and I are, I know Ava's her BFF, but yeah. 
I think I'm like 1,700 in line. <laughs> if, I if, you're seven, you're still in line if I were 1,700, <laughs> <laughs> it actually be quite good. There are billions I, of people in the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's 360. You know, and I said before, I think you should have this commentary. You should do commentary because, you know, I want to ask you about, we're going to wrap up, but I want to ask you, what do you think about Bob Iger coming back? Yeah. Is there, do you have an opinion of that? I think he's one of the best CEOs this industry has ever seen, and I'm really excited to see how somebody who knows the industry that well, has had that much success, deals with the radical changes that the business is mm -hmm. confronting right now. I think there's, I'm, optim I'm optimistic about his leadership, but intellectually, I'm just fascinated to see how somebody who has had that much success responds to the reality that we're in right now, which is going to be challenging for anyone. Mm. So that was your audition tape. For the pilot, <laughs> we're going to make sure it gets produced. Someone let me have a conversation with Bob Iger. Yes. I think, I, look, I think it would be an interesting conversation. In conversation with Franklin Leonard. Look, let's put it into the universe. Let's Maybe do it'll it. happen. Let's do it. Well, I hope, hope I can be on episode 1700. Oh, it'll be before 1700. <laughs> I can promise you that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Franklin. No, 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 I appreciate you. I'll see you.